Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. Joseph's dreams. Dreams, not just one dream. More than one, even though your Bible might say it in the singular. Verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. In verse 1, Jacob is living in the land of Canaan. In the previous chapter, Esau, he moved away. He moved away out of Canaan to the land of Edom, southeast of the land of Canaan. Jacob then is alone or his family, his clan, is there alone, along with the Canaanites, of course. Jacob does not own the land, but he is there in uh, contradistinction to Esau, mentioned in the previous chapter. In chapter 37, we now read of the life of Jacob, but also specifically the life of his son Joseph, from Genesis 37 to 50. 37 to 50, the rest of the book of Genesis encompasses both Jacob and Joseph and what happens to them. We Last time, we explored why it might be that Moses describes Esau first in chapter 36 and then doesn't mention Esau again. Well, this is a pattern in the book of Genesis and even in the Bible to mention some wicked man or some wicked family or wicked nation briefly first and then take the rest of the time to describe the righteous and God's dealings with the righteous. This happens in Genesis chapter 4. At the end of Genesis 4, we have a brief genealogy and description of the lineage of Cain. And then Abel's, uh, or after Abel was murdered, Adam's descendant Seth, and what happens from Seth onwards to Noah at the end of Genesis 4 and chapter 5. Another example of this is in Genesis chapter 25, where Ishmael's descendants are mentioned very briefly. But then from chapter 25, 26, 27 onward, we are told about Isaac, the brother of Ishmael. And the same way right here, Esau is mentioned in chapter 36. But then Jacob's descendants, being brothers, Jacob, the brother of Esau, his descendants and what happens to them and God's dealings with them in the rest of the book of Genesis. This is also elsewhere in Scripture, this kind of pattern. A brief mention, briefer mention of the wicked, but then a primary focus on the righteous and God's dealings with the righteous so that we might learn from the examples of the wicked and the righteous. In 37 verse 1, it says that Jacob lived where his father sojourned. He lived where his father, that is Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Isaac sojourned in Canaan. To be a sojourner means that you are an alien. 
you are not a native to the land. It's not the country of your birth. However, this phrase or this word is very interesting in the book of Genesis and elsewhere in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Isaac was born in Canaan. Isaac and Jacob were born in Canaan, yet they are said to sojourn in the land of Canaan. Why is that? Because from the book of Genesis onward, those who live on the earth are sojourners, aliens and strangers on the earth. That's why it says that he sojourned. Not only Isaac, but even Jacob acknowledges this truth. He acknowledges this truth in Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter, excuse me, Genesis chapter 47. Genesis 47. 47, we'll pick it up at verse 8. 47, 8. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. He calls himself a sojourner, Jacob himself also. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all sojourners, and he calls the years up to that point, 130 years that he had been sojourning, not sojourning only or merely in the land of Canaan, but on the earth. Because they were looking for a city to come. The heavenly city, Hebrews eleven sixteen, And also Hebrews 13, 14, and 15. They were looking for a heavenly city. This is what their faith was. So these afflictions that they experience are afflictions on the road to heaven. On the highway to heaven. That's what they are experiencing here. And that's what is detailed for us here in Genesis 37 to 50. We will also notice in this section, particularly in the life of Joseph, that there are so many parallels to the life of Christ. So many parallels or typologies, symbols, illustrations between Joseph and Jesus Christ. We'll notice this at the end of the chapter. So then, verse 2. It says, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Though it says generations of Jacob, Jacob is prominent here, yet more attention is given to one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. That should not be a surprise to anyone. The, the Bible, in, especially in the book of Genesis, patterns itself after certain major patriarchs, certain major figures, so that we might learn from their example God's dealings with them in relation to God's dealings with us. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now these things happen to them um, so that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. They happen to them as examples for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 11. Verse 2 continues, Joseph, when 16 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. 
And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. At this point, Joseph is 17. His father at this point is 108 years old. 17 years old and 108 years old. It says in verse 3 that Israel or Jacob loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. Joseph, when he was born uh, to Jacob um, in the land of Padan Aram, Jacob was uh, 91 years old when Joseph was born. 91 years old when he was born. And Joseph now is 17. Another major critical point in Joseph's life where his age is mentioned is 4146. 4146. Now, Joseph was 13, uh, 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. 4146, Joseph was 30 years old when he became the ruler of Egypt, when he became the second in command in the land of Egypt. That means that these incidents from 37 to 41 took place between the age of 17 and 30, about 13 or 14 years of his life. He is pastoring the flock of his father, and he's doing it with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. We learn who they are in chapter 35, 35, 25, and 26. It says, The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. At this point, when he presents, delivers a bad report about them to their father, he is pastoring the flock with those four. Those four plus Joseph. These four behaved in such a bad way, it doesn't tell us what exactly their behavior was, what exactly it was, whether in word or in deed or both. There was something evil that they were doing. Now, this bad report should not be interpreted as Joseph snitching, Joseph snitching on his brothers. Snitching is when somebody is doing something that is just fine, but then someone who sees it goes and tells another about that activity, that action, and puts a negative color on it, puts some shade on it, considers it an evil thing that they are doing. That's what snitching would be. But Joseph is not snitching here. Um, Joseph is reporting something that they're doing wrong. And he's letting his father know. We don't know what it was about, but it was, it, it is not criticized here. It's not condemned here. And the, even the father isn't condemning it. The father needed to know what actually was happening. In other words, Joseph is not gossiping and he's not slandering. Joseph is telling the truth about what evil his four brothers committed. Well, that will not 
endear the brothers to Joseph. It will not endear them. Yet, this is evidence that Joseph was a man of truth and honesty. He was a man of truth and honesty. We have this one indication. We'll find that there is more in this chapter and throughout this narrative. Verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. Israel, or Jacob, Joseph's father, loved him more than the rest of the sons. Now, why would he love him more than the others? It says there in verse 3, because he was the son of his old age. Probably, Joseph, more than the others, was called upon to help Jacob, to care for Jacob, to do whatever Jacob wanted in that way so that there was more proximity, more time spent between father and son. Probably that would have happened. But also, since he was so old when Joseph was born, 91 years old, it would be natural for the father to consider the son the way a grandfather considers a grandson. That's just natural and normal. That's the way it happens. People do not fault that unless the grandfather or the old man is committing a sin. Correct? Normally, naturally, people do not fault because they know it is a good thing for there to be tenderness between a grandfather and a grandson. There should be that. Or an old father with a young son. There should be that. Uh, with the qualification that the grandfather is not sinning in being um, indulgent to the grandson. The passage here does not present it as though Jacob is indulgent to to Joseph. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, but he did wrong or evil. It doesn't say that. Therefore, we should not take it that way. Furthermore, it says in verse 3, he made him a very colored tunic. A tunic or a coat. A long sleeve and and long robed coat. Either a tunic, which would be shorter and lighter, um, and mostly just a long shirt. A tunic or a coat, whatever it may be, he made him a very colored tunic. Well, is this a negative or is this partiality? Is this a bias or not? It doesn't present it that way. Moses doesn't present it that way. Therefore, is it a, a realistic and, and legitimate practice for someone to give another a gift, but not to give that same gift to everybody? Yes, this happens in life. It happens in life, and if that happens in life, and we don't fault others for it, when they give a particular person a gift, but they don't give everyone in the family the same gift. I understand now in today's culture, everybody gets a prize, everybody gets a trophy. All the children, whether they graduate or not, or whether they make good marks in school or not, 
Everybody is supposed to be on the same level. But we're not talking it with that mentality. We're talking with a mentality of good behavior, good character, special relationship. And in those ways, a gift is appropriate. A reward is appropriate. That's what happens between Israel and Joseph in verse 3. However, verse 4, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now we have all the rest of the brothers who are jealous, envious of Joseph. Is it right when one receives a gift for others to be jealous of that recipient? To be envious or jealous of the recipient of the gift? No, it's not right. It shows greed. It shows covetousness, correct? You shall not covet, the 10th commandment, Exodus 20, verse 17. This is the fault of the brothers. Now we have another reason why the brothers, now they're all the rest of the brothers, not just the four mentioned in verse 2, but the rest of the brothers who are envious of Joseph. They have some hatred of him. This hatred is intensified. Verses 5, 5 to 11. Verses 5 to 11. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow, down, bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Further reasons for his brothers to hate Joseph. Joseph had a dream. As we have indicated in the title of this chapter, he has these dreams, but these are not the common daily dreams. These are divine oracles. These are divine dreams. That is, these are words from God. These are prophecies. We must take it that way. When we typically read this chapter, we typically underestimate what God revealed to Joseph, thinking that this is a common dream. But it's not a common dream. It is divine. God himself had already designated Joseph as a prophet at some point in his life, at least by the age of 17. At least by this age, he is already a prophet 
and one who receives divine words in these dreams. In chapter 40, in chapters 40 to 41, remember when he's in prison, he is an interpreter of dreams like a prophet would also do. And in 41, 41, 37, we'll read 41, 37 to 39. You recall that because of his interpretations, this is what elevated him from being a prisoner to a prince. Correct? In 41, 37. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? In whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. Pharaoh says, there's no one else in whom is a divine spirit. Literally, in whom is the spirit of God. It says in Hebrew, in whom is the spirit of God. Divine spirit. And Pharaoh's not wrong. Though Pharaoh is a pagan, he's not wrong in what he asserts about Joseph because Joseph doesn't deny it. He knows the Spirit of God dwells in him. He doesn't deny it. And then in verse 39, Pharaoh said to Joseph, directly to Joseph, since God has informed you, and Joseph does not deny these words of Pharaoh. It's true. God had informed Joseph as an interpreter of the dreams of the two other prisoners. So this is a pattern we see here in the book of Genesis that Joseph was indeed endowed with the Spirit of God to interpret. Not only to receive dreams, but to interpret the dreams. Let's see another place in the Scriptures. Psalm 105, Psalm 105, 16. 16 to 24. Psalm 105, 16. And he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt, thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries." It says here of Joseph that he was sold as a slave, which we find we will read later in Genesis 37. And then it also says in verse 19, until the time that his word came to pass. 
until the time that his word came to pass. Joseph's word, which was also what? God's word. The word of the Lord tested him. God's word tested him from the time he received those two dreams in Genesis 37. That he received divine oracles, divine words, the word of the Lord in those two dreams. The word of the Lord tested him from the moment he received them. And then after he announced them, or even before he announced them to his brothers, whom he knew hated him. He knew his brothers hated him, and yet he delivered God's word to them and intensified that hatred. Joseph did that. Not only that, but he knew that it would take some time between that hatred in Genesis 37 and his elevation to office to be ruler later in his life. He knew. And meantime, from age 17 to 30, the word of the Lord tested him, tested Joseph. Joseph had to endure affliction for those 13 years. Also in verse 22, verse 22, Psalm 105, 22, it says that Joseph taught the elders of Egypt wisdom. He taught the elders of Egypt wisdom. Whose wisdom? God's wisdom. And what does that wisdom entail? The wisdom of Christ, the wisdom of the gospel, the wisdom of salvation. He taught them salvation in the land of Egypt. Joseph was an evangelist preaching the gospel throughout. So back to Genesis 37, 5 and following. These dreams that Joseph has here have to be taken as divine, coming from God himself. Joseph, therefore, he had to be a man of courage at age 17. He wasn't a coward. We know from 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, of power and love and discipline. That's the spirit God has given us, not of fear, timidity, intimidation. Joseph had courage, power, love, and discipline from God because he knew even though his brothers hated him, they would hate him even more unless they repented. He knew it. Yet he delivered that. They correctly understand in verses 6 to, uh, six to 8 that this meant these sheaves in the field, if they are bowing down to him, that the lesser bows down to the greater in rank. Yep. Not greater in value, image of God value, but greater in rank greater in status in society. The lesser bows down to the greater. They knew that, and that's very obvious evident. So they correctly interpret it. But they can't believe it. (laughs) Instead of being humbled by it, their pride increases. Their pride intensifies. 
the word of the Lord to them, no matter who delivers it, even if it's their familiar brother, younger brother, they should not have despised it. They should have received that word based on its merits, based on the truthfulness of it, based on the veracity of it. They should have received it like that instead of hating it, despising it, not only the word, but the person, the messenger who delivered that word. But their pride and unbelief was so strong, they had to reject the messenger and his message. They do it again. They do it again in 9 and following with the second dream of Joseph, where the sun and moon and 11 stars bow down to Joseph. The sun and moon, 11 stars. The moon has been an enigma to interpreters. Who is the moon? Because Joseph's mother was Rachel, but she died earlier in chapter 35 when Jacob was returning to the land of Canaan. So who is this moon, the mother? It would have to either be Leah, who would be the legal stepmother, Leah, or Bilhah, who was the maid of Rachel. It would have, it would have to be one of those two. But it doesn't matter. Right. I say that, be, it, that it doesn't matter because easily it's solved by either Leah or Bilhah. It doesn't matter because skeptics of the Bible will look at this and say, the Bible contradicts itself because his literal, natural, biological mother had already died. Well, don't you think Moses knew that already? Uh, or don't you think the Holy Spirit knew that already? Of course. And we know that already because we read chapter 35. So if we know it, why don't they know it? Why can't we grant them the same kind of knowledge and common sense that we have? We should. Instead of uh, trying to grumble and dispute with God and His Holy Spirit. Verses 11, uh, or verse 11. The brothers maintain their jealousy... They maintain their jealousy, and we know it's not until they meet Joseph in Egypt that things change between the brothers and Joseph. The father, in verse 10, first rebuked Joseph. But then in verse 11, something overcame him. Perhaps the Spirit warned him. But his father kept the saying in mind. I think that Moses is telling us between verses 10 and 11, Jacob's initial reaction was a fleshly wrong reaction to also behave just like the rest of his sons against Joseph. But he then realized he shouldn't do that and keep the saying in mind. To remember it because since Joseph is a godly young man. I cannot dispute with what he says. I have to keep in mind what he says. That's what Jacob does. Verse 11. Now another incident. Verses 12 to 17. 12 to 17. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. 
And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, What are you looking for? And he said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. In the earlier passage, we have these divine dreams to Joseph showing that God is in control. God is providentially at work in their life. Correct? That is clearly indicated. Even here in 12 to 17, God is so. But we have here a kind of normal, natural, accidental incident, a happenstance occurrence right here, which is not merely and purely an accident. We use the word accident because it's from our perspective, but it's not an accident in the pure sense of the word in terms of God's perspective. It's all providential. What's happening in 12 to 17 and even what's happening in the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book and even in the rest of the Bible. Nothing is a pure 100% accident. From God's perspective, there is a purpose in it. Even when it seems so random, like this. Verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. The brothers go, but Israel did not send Joseph yet. Now this place, Shechem, is several miles, maybe about 60 miles from Hebron in the south to Shechem in the north, not too far away from Samaria in the north. So they go a far distance to find green pastures for their flocks, which is the normal, proper thing to do. But apparently it had taken a long time. Going 60 miles away, that's a great distance. And if you spend a lot of time there, naturally the father will be curious as to how things are going. Especially since chapter 34. What happened in chapter 34? Simeon and Levi massacred the Shechemites, the men, right? They They massacred them. And therefore, it's possible that those who survived and those who are in the surrounding area would be at odds, would seek hostility against the sons of Jacob. So Joseph is um, uh, sent because Jacob is concerned and he sends him. Verse 13, when he calls him to this mission, notice it says, I will go. Joseph, uh, Joseph says, I will go. Joseph doesn't complain. He doesn't halt. He doesn't pause. He just simply says, I will go. 14. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. 15. A man found him. And behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, 
What are you looking for? A man found him. Somebody is going in the field in a place that is unknown to him, a strange place to him, looking for something or looking for someone. A man finds him and the man asks him. He he realizes something is amiss, so he asks Joseph, what are you looking for? 16, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. 17, the man said, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. They moved from here. That man happened to hear them and happened to hear where they're going. He hears this conversation. Somehow that is reported to the man, and the man then meets Joseph by accident, (laughs) finds him in the field, and then says, this is where they went. This is where they said they were going to go. And this place, Dothan, is a few more miles away, maybe about five to ten miles away, and he goes there at Dothan. He finds them there. 18 to 24. Isn't Joseph on a mission to help his brothers? No, not necessarily. Isn't Joseph on a mission to help his father? Yes. Yes. To help his father and his brothers to make sure that the brothers are fine and the flock is fine. Correct? That is his mission. That is his, that is his nearsighted mission. That is why his father sent him. See if your brothers are okay and see if the flock is okay. He's going to do something good for his brothers who hate him. And now we see the following, 18 to 24. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him in one, into one of the pits. And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. They devise murder against their own brother. Similar to Cain finding Abel or encountering Abel in the field and murdering Abel. And you know that no one who is a murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 3, 14, 15. No eternal life when they have these thoughts of murder. Verse 19 Here comes this dreamer. Literally, behold, this master of dreams. 
This master of dreams is coming. They're mocking him. These dreams are from God. Yet they despise the word of God because they could not, would not, because of pride, look at the merits of the word and made an excuse by attacking the messenger because they hated the messenger. And they mock it all. They not only want to murder, but verse 20, they want to deceive. Death and deception are in their mind. A wild beast devoured him. That's what they want to say to people. A wild beast. After all, they are in the field, they're in the wilderness, they're in a place where there are wild animals. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. If these dreams are from God, are they not saying that if we get rid of this messenger of God, then these dreams will never be fulfilled in him? If we do away with him from the earth, then we would never bow down to him. Right? Saul did the same thing. Saul, King Saul, he did the same thing. He knew the word of the Lord was that David would succeed him on the throne. Yet he attempted numerous times to murder David, to assassinate David in the book of 1 Samuel. In the book of 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 18, 18 to 26, from 18 to 26, he attempted to murder or assassinate David. Saul did. To overthrow the word of the Lord. Didn't the scribes and the Pharisees attempt the same? Thinking that if they could murder Christ, then they would do away with him and they wouldn't have to deal with him anymore. Not believing what he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They knew he said it because they said, we know that deceiver said, after three days I shall rise again. That's why they asked Pilate for guards and a seal over the tomb so that nothing would happen. Right? In the same way, they are trying to undermine God's word. 21. Reuben, he doesn't want to take his life away. He wants to plot against his brothers. The brothers are plotting against Joseph, but Reuben wants to spare the life of Joseph. He says, let's throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, this dry pit. Throw him there. And why a dry pit? So that he can survive for a short time. Time enough for Reuben to be separated from his brothers to go to that pit and deliver Joseph out of that pit and then deliver Joseph into the hands of his father, Jacob. That's what he wanted to do. It says in verse 22 that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. Why would Reuben have this concern? Well, Reuben is the firstborn. The responsibility would rest on him. 
just in case the plot doesn't work, probably. Rubin may be thinking that. We don't know what's in his mind, but that is one possibility. Another possibility, in addition to that, is remember Reuben was the one that committed adultery with Bilhah in chapter 35, verse 22. 35-22. He had committed adultery against his father. This would be a way to endear him to his father in case there was some animosity and broken fellowship between his father and Reuben. This would be a way to do so. We don't know why, we just know he does want to restore him to his father. That much we know. Well, what do they do in 23? The brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic. They took him and threw him into the pit. They stripped him of the, of the clothes. It doesn't say if they stripped him bare naked, probably with just a little bit on, but the, t- took the tunic off because they wanted to use the tunic later to put blood, the blood of an animal on the tunic and then go to the father with that tunic. Also, it's a, a way of shaming him. This thing that is a mantle of pride to you, the tunic, we're going to take it away from you before you die. 25 to 28. 25 to 28. Another brother, Judah, speaks up. 25. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. In 25, in 25, first thing, after they throw him into the dry pit, they eat a meal. (laughs) They eat, and normally when we eat, we refresh ourselves and we feel better, right? We feel good about ourselves. They have the audacity. They have the audacity to eat food after they have jeopardized their own flesh and blood, their brother. They don't have any grief. They don't have any guilt. They don't have any remorse like that. In fact, they are happy as they eat. But then a caravan of Ishmaelites comes. It says in 25 Ishmaelites. It says in 28 Midianites. And then also it says again in verse 36. 36, it says, the Midianites. The Midianites sold him. Furthermore, in chapter 39, verse 1, it calls them Ishmaelites. That means that in this narrative from 37 to 39, 
Twice they're called Ishmaelites and twice they're called Midianites. What were they? Both. They were both. It's normal and natural for the descendants of Ishmael who lived near the descendants of Midian to be in proximity with each other, living in the same land, same neighborhood, also intermarrying with each other so that they are both. You could call them Ishmaelites or you could call them Midianites. Either one does does uh, justice to the facts of the matter. This is another point, by the way, where critics of the Scripture call this a contradiction. They, uh, Moses can't make up his mind. Are they Ishmaelites or Midianites? They say. But they are, they are both. They are both. This also happens to, to many throughout history. Many people are identified by two ethnicities or two languages like that. Verse 25 further says, they came from Gilead. Gilead was on the eastern side of the land of Canaan. The eastern side of the land of, uh, in the land of Canaan, eastern side of the river Jordan. That was also a place where these kinds of products would be found and able to be purchased and then taken from there to Egypt where Egypt doesn't have them. This is normally what happens with merchandise, is it not? And that's what's happening. These valuables from the land of Gilead in the land of Canaan are now being transported for sale to Egypt. Well, Judah sees this. He sees merchandising before his eyes. He sees the commercial activity happening before his eyes. So that prompts him to have a commercial thought. To buy and sell his brother. Or having his brother in his possessions to sell his brother so that these merchants might buy him. And sell him as a slave into the land of Egypt. Somebody there, some wealthy man in Egypt, will buy his brother. He says, there's no profit if... We cover up his blood. We're not going to get any money from that. All we get is a dead brother. We just get him away from us. But now we can get him away from us and make some money. And they do so for 20 shekels of silver. For 20 shekels of silver. No humanity by... Because they do this to their own brother. No humanity. 29 to 36. 29 to 36. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. And he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins 
and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Reuben returns to the pit. He doesn't find Joseph, so he tears his garments. He returns alone, not with the others. He returns. He doesn't find him. He tears his... He doesn't know. It doesn't tell us why, but he doesn't know what happened in the previous paragraph. The brothers kept it from Reuben for some reason. Reuben wanted to go back and deliver him. So he returns in verse 30 to his brothers. And notice it says the boy is not there. Reuben had enough humanity to want to spare his brother and curry favor with his father. We see this also where he says um, in verse 30, where am I to go? Where am I to go? Probably meaning, how can I show, being the oldest brother, how can I show my face to my father that I couldn't take care of all the brothers? Something of that nature, perhaps. So, Reuben tears his garments. We also see that in 34, Jacob tears his garments, puts on sackcloth. This is a way to express grief. Distress. They were doing this because of the loss of life. So, verse. Also in verse 30, even though Reuben had some humanity, I don't think he had enough. Because it says he calls his own brother the boy. Why didn't he say our brother? Why didn't he say our brother? Our brother, our brother. He didn't say our, and he didn't say brother. He said the boy. Then they cover their tracks with deception. Presumably they consult each other, inform each other of what happened and what they should do. 31, so they took Joseph's tunic slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. Why do they do this? Because they want the blood to be on the tunic to appear as though they found the tunic on the ground somewhere where a wild beast had already devoured Joseph. Verse 32. They sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. They sent the tunic. Likely implying that they sent it by the hand of servants. They didn't go with the tunic directly to their father. They sent it by the hand of servants or somebody else. 
And they also put these words in the mouth of the messenger, the servant. We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. A blatant lie. We found this. We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. They knew he did not have to examine it. He just had to look at it. They knew, but they say examine it. Your son's tunic. They didn't say our brother's tunic. Our brother's tunic. Your son's tunic or not. 33. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn in, uh, to pieces. Their plot works. Their plot, their scheme, it works. Without putting or without confirming or contradicting their father, they let their father say these words and they let the words stand. That's how corrupt they were. Yes, and heartless, corrupt and heartless. Jacob, in response, tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth, rough clothing on his loins, and mourned for his son many days, for a long time. Actually, we know that when Jacob eventually sees Joseph in Genesis chapter 45, 44, 45, 46, when that happens and they move to um, Egypt, Jacob, he had been longing for a long time for Joseph. When it says many days, it doesn't mean just 10 days, 20 days, 30 days. It probably means years. A a form of expression, an idiom that means years, for many years. Mourned for his son. Why? Well, he received oracles from God. Therefore, he must have been godly. We will see later in chapter 39 more evidence of Joseph's godliness even when he was a young man. So his godly young son, he mourns for him. The deception continues in 35. The deception continues with utter hypocrisy. Utter hypocrisy. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. We don't know if the daughters were informed by the sons. But we do know that the rest of the sons, they knew. Yep. All those that were there in Dothan, they all knew what actually happened. Yet, they perpetuate this lie. With hypocrisy, they come to comfort him. Yep, right. They come to comfort him over the loss of Joseph. He refuses this comfort and says, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. He's saying that I'm going to die however long I live. 
I'm going to live the rest of my life mourning and longing for my son, Joseph. That's how grievous this is. He says that to them, and it doesn't move them. In fact, nothing moved them. They are not revealers of the truth until they go to Egypt and realize that Joseph is the ruler of Egypt. Nothing changes in this for many years until then. At least from age Joseph being 17 to Joseph being age 39. That's when Jacob met Joseph, when Joseph was 39 years old. Because he became ruler at age 30, seven years of plenty, two years of famine, and the text says there are five more years to go. That's why Jacob and clan moved to Egypt. He was 39 years old. For those 22 years. 22 years, and they don't tell him the truth. That's how evil they were. Do not tell him the truth. Before we leave verse 35, it says daughters. The text says daughters. Some have taken this to mean granddaughters, not literal daughters. However, we ought to take it as daughters in the plural. He had at least two daughters. One we know by name from chapter 34, Dina, the one that Shechem the man had raped, We know that from chapter 34. But in 46, in 46, it says the following. Chapter 46, verse 7. This is a genealogy of Jacob when he entered Egypt under Joseph's reign. 46.7, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Clearly, 46.7 says his daughters and his granddaughters means he had at least two daughters. Further, verse 15 46.15, these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram with his daughter Dina. All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. So he had daughters as well. Now, 37.36, verse 36. Meanwhile, The Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Of course, someone more wealthy would buy a slave. Someone more wealthy. And it would be natural that this officer of Pharaoh would be a wealthy man. A nobleman would normally be a wealthy man, a man of means. But it's not accidental that this happened either. That he was sold to Potiphar because of what we're going to read in chapter 39. In chapter 39, we'll find that Potiphar's wife is an adulterous woman. His wife is that, 
And because of her attempted adultery, Joseph is going to be maligned, thrown in prison, then eventually interpret dreams of two other prisoners, and then eventually after that be released because of his ability to accurately interpret dreams. And all of this is by the providence of God. No accident that he is sold to Potiphar, that specific man. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.